Well, we're going to continue on in our series this morning that we've titled Rebuilding Church. And really, for those who have not been here, you've forgotten kind of where we've been over the past several weeks, we're exploring the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are these stories that come to us in the Old Testament about what it was like for the people of God to experience what has been called the second exodus. That is, God's people had been in exile in Babylon for nearly 70 years, and God has freed them to re-enter into the promised land with a commissioning to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple to establish themselves as the holy people of God, that through them he might be able to bless the nations. And really, it's really important in terms of biblical history that this happens because the Messiah and the Savior, the one who is going to save the whole world, is going to come out of these people. But the reason why we're here is I've I've been thinking a lot about our cultural moment, especially the past couple of years, and it feels like in many ways there's just been this flattening of religious life or like life in the congregation, right? And we find ourselves trying to grasp and hold on to something like what is this new thing that God is going to do? Is God going to show up and do something? Is it going to look like the old thing? Is is everything going to go back to what it was? And what we're really searching for here is a little bit of wisdom and insight into what it looks like to be the kinds of people who are waiting, who are anticipating, and who are engaging with the new thing that God is doing in our midst. And it might look very different from the old thing that was going on. But to ground us this morning, we're going to be reading Ezra chapter 4. You can grab a Bible in front of you. If you have a Bible, you can grab it. Or if you have a smartphone that has a Bible, you're welcome to open up to that. Ezra is one of the easiest books in the Bible to find. Is that right? No, that's incorrect. It's after 2 Chronicles. But if you have one of these here, page 468 is where we are going to be this morning. I invite you this morning, church, to hear the word of the Lord. Ezra writes these words. He says, when the enemies of the people of Judah... Well, let me back up real quick before we read totally. Sorry. So we are, for those who were not here last week... The the Israelites have come back into the promised land, and they have laid the foundation for the temple. And it was this joyous occasion. They celebrate with shouts of praise and music and instruments and all types of things. So on the tail end of that event, you need to hear these words. All right. So when the enemies of the people of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned captives were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the leaders of the families. The enemy said, Let us help you build because we are like you and want to worship your God. We have been offering sacrifices to him since the time of, anybody want to try there? Come on, Don, I saw you with the big smile. You want to shout it out for all of us to know how to read this Hebrew name? Esharadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel Yeshua and the leaders of Israel answered, you will not help us build a temple to our God. We will build it ourselves for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us to do. Then the people around them tried to discourage the people of Judah by making them afraid to build. Their enemies hired others to delay the building plans during the time Cyrus was king of Persia, and it continued to the time Darius was king of Persia. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Father, we have come in faith this morning, believing that you are a God who speaks, 
that you are a God who has something to say. And we believe that this word, that your word, can breathe new life into the world and into us. And so we ask, oh God, would you speak for we are listening. Would you grant us the grace and the mercy that we need to familiarize ourselves with your voice. I thank you for being the kind of God who speaks in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the great joys of parenting, and I say that with as much sarcasm as I possibly can without sounding like a jerk this morning, of parenting our kids at the stage of life that they are in is to bear witness to their overconfidence. Uh, They are confident that they can do much more than they actually can do, right? Parents in the room, you remember like this stage of life where your kids think that they can do everything that they see you doing. We have recently got to this stage where Levi is fully confident in his capacity to pour himself a bowl of cereal, milk, and all. And so I, being a trusting father, you know, thinking he's got to learn how to do this at some point, uh, let him, usually with observation, pour himself a bowl of cereal with milk and everything. And so literally yesterday morning, I woke up early. It was just me and Levi up. He wanted to eat breakfast. And he said, I said, what do you want? Thinking, I'll make you waffles, pancakes, French toast. Like, I go all out with the kids and breakfast. And he's like, I want Honey Nut Cheerios. And I'm like relieved, right? Like, I don't have to do that much work. And he said, but I want to pour my own cereal. And I was like, okay, you can pour your own cereal. He's like, and I want to pour the milk too. And I was like, like, no, you should not pour the milk. And he said, and in fact, I want to pour the milk before I pour the cereal into the bowl. And I was like... All right, let's just roll with it, right? Like, what could happen on a Saturday morning that would be that bad? And so I got the milk out, got the bowl, got the cereal, and I went and turned, and Emma gotten up at that point in time and said, I see my big brother eating cereal. I want to eat cereal too. And so I go into the kitchen to go get her a bowl, and I hear Levi's voice in the back. He says, Dad, I spilled a little milk. And so I go and I grab a bowl, and I'm like, of course you did. And I grab like a sheet of paper towel and... I walk back over to the table, and by I spilled a little milk, Levi meant I spilled a half gallon of milk all over the table, but some of it did get into my bowl. It's like, oh, Lord, have mercy. My son, what are you doing, right? There's just this overconfidence in what it is that he can do. But Emma is much the same. Emma's cute phrase that when she wants to attempt something on her own is, I do it. I do it, right? Carry her dinner plate full of food across the living room and kitchen. I can do it. I do it. I do it. You want to brush your hair? I do it. I do it. Brush her teeth? I do it. I do it. Everything apparently she is capable of doing. And it is the same impulse that is in many of us. We long to be self-sufficient individuals capable of looking to ourselves to meet our own needs. This is why many of us, after a surgical procedure or an injury, when the doctor has told us to use crutches or sit in a wheelchair, absolutely and utterly refuse, right? Because I don't need any assistance or help. 
And this is, in fact, not just a, a personal impulse. It is a cultural value. Those who are in need of support and assistance are seen as slightly lesser. We would never say it out loud. But they are seen as slightly lesser. This is why many of us refuse help, right? When I'm picking up a large box or package, like, no, I totally got this. I'm totally fine. I don't need any help. This is why we, 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 we do not use crutches, even though the doctor says, this is why many of us will never ask for directions, even though we know that we are lost, because we can figure it out on our own. I do it. I do it. But where our text picks up this morning is just after the Israelites have celebrated the laying of the foundation for the new temple. They have returned from exile and they're set to reconstruct the ruined city of Jerusalem that was ruined and wrecked by the Babylonians. And central to that effort is the the rebuilding of the temple. This is the, the symbol and the actual physical presence of God in their midst. And what we see here, and we aren't going to go deep into this right now, but we have some of the residents of the surrounding region who are offering assistance to the returned exiles that they want to help rebuild the temple. These would be the people that we would come to know in the New Testament as the Samaritans. Now, we're not going to jump fully into the history of where the Samaritans come from, and why there's this tension, but we begin to see that the rivalry between Samaritans and Jews, or Samaritans and Israelites, begins kind of here at this moment. See, the Samaritans are the Israelites who had stayed in the land while the exiles were were taken from Jerusalem and their land and shipped off to the capital of Babylon in exile. You see, when the Babylonians conquered the land, that they effectively removed the ruling class of people, the educated people, those who held positions of governance in the land, and they, they moved them to their country and capital in the hopes that they would assimilate into their culture, but also in the hopes that by removing leaders, by removing the ruling class of people, you diminish the likelihood of those people that you just conquered rebelling against you, right? Without critical leadership, it's really hard to form an organized rebellion to overthrow you because you're not great people and people don't really like you. They want to conquer you back, right? But during this time period when the exiles, many of them taken, there's a lot of Israelites who are left in the land. And while there's no leadership, while there's no governance, a number of different people groups begin to move into the region. They come with a variety of cultures and foods and languages and even gods, They bring their religious practices of worship with them as well. And it seems that many of the Israelites who stayed in the land began to marry and intertwine their lives with these outside people groups. Consequently, they begin to worship the gods of these people, taking up their religious practices for them. And the returned exiles have come back into the land and after the second exodus to be the holy people God had called his people to be. And the thought of welcoming people who worshipped a number of different gods at this point, who were caught up in a number of different religious practices and activities, seemed like it worked against their effort and focus to want to just dedicate themselves to God and God alone thinking that if they allow these people to assist with the rebuilding and the reconstruction of the temple, that the purpose 
that they're seeking after will be ruined. So this is where Samaritans, Israelites, that's where this all comes to head, is right here in this moment. And so it creates this real tension of those who were sent into exile and those who stayed in the land. And so there's this feud that is developed between those in the land and those returning from exile. But what's curious to me is the response that the returned exiles give to the Samaritans. They say, No, you will not help us build a temple to our God. We will build it ourselves for the Lord. The God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us to do. We will build it ourselves for the Lord. In our own strength, with our own minds, in our own effort, with our own resources, with our own will, We are going to do this for God. Have you ever been there before? Where you thought the grand reconstruction project of your life was going to be accomplished in your own effort. I'm going to fix my broken family. Trust me. I'm going to heal my marriage that's falling apart. I'm going to get myself sober. I'm going to overcome my family's dysfunction. I'm going to recover from my childhood trauma. I'm going to resolve and comfort myself in my own grief. I'm going to pull up myself by my own bootstraps because I am a red-blooded American and that's what we do. We are self-sufficient. I do it. But see, what we discover and what we find so often is the case is that when we undertake work that only God can do, we will quickly run into the obstacles that only God can overcome. If we read on past this initial event and opposition that the Israelites face in rebuilding the temple, we discover that the opposition that is set against their project is much greater than they initially considered. I, I wondered as I was reading this this morning, if you could go back in time and be like, you just want to let the Samaritans help you? That might be actually a good thing here if you just received a little help. But after the Samaritans are kept from participating in the reconstruction of the temple, they reach out, the Samaritans do, to the governing political officials, encouraging them to oppose the reconstruction of the temple. They make the case to King Artaxerxes, sorry, the X always throws me off that it's said like a Z instead of an X. (laughs) The now king of the Persian Empire after Cyrus died. And they say to him that if if the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, if Jerusalem is rebuilt, if the walls of the city are erected, that this people here, they will rebel against the Persian Empire. It'll work against everything that you're hoping to do. And so the king, Artaxerxes, issues an order to cease the rebuilding of the temple and the city walls. And the end of chapter 4 in Ezra, it concludes this way. It says, at that time, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem stopped and was discontinued until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. Now, that doesn't sound like much of anything to us because we have no idea who King Darius of Persia is, right? Can I get an amen? Amen, right? But after the initial celebration of the laying of the foundation for the temple, it's another 
15 years until the next step is done. For 15 years, no walls were built, no nails were hammered, no concrete was poured, no windows installed. There's no arguing over carpet. There's no arguing over the paint color of the building and if we're going to have pews or chairs, right? There's just none of that going on for 15 years. All of the enthusiasm of the celebration, of the laying of the foundation, all of the joy expressed, all of the hope of this project silenced for 15 years. It seems incredible to me that the same returned exiles who had shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid discontinue their work for 15 years. How could fear stop such holy zeal? And yet this is the pattern that we see all throughout repeatedly of the covenantal community and commitments of Israel in the Old Testament. They enthusiastically commit themselves to God and then fall away. We see it in Abraham, right? You guys know the story of Abraham. Having received the covenantal promise of a son by his wife, Sarah, Abraham decides, well, I don't know if God's actually going to do this. So let me take things into my own hands. I got this. And I have this maidservant, Hagar, that maybe we could have a kid with and it'll work out that way. We see it with the Israelites after the first exodus. They escape the clutches of their slavery in Egypt. And in chapter 19, they promise, God, we will do whatever it is that you want us to do. We commit ourselves, we dedicate ourselves wholly unto you and you alone. A few chapters later, they're like, who's going to lead us? And they got the golden calf, right? That's one of my favorite stories biblically, by the way. When Moses comes down from the mountain and he's like, Aaron, uh, why are you guys worshiping a golden calf? And Aaron's like, I don't know, we just put gold into the fire and this calf came out. Like, I have no idea what happened. Moses, even after leading the people out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, was not permitted to enter the promised land because he broke faith in God's leadership in his life. Don't worry, God, I got it. I know how to give the people water. David, almost immediately after God made his covenant with him, commits his sexual sin with Bathsheba, has her husband murdered and commits so much violence that God does not permit him to build the temple. You see, when we live out of our own strengths, when we decide that we are self-sufficient, that we can do it without God, we quickly realize that we are not enough. That we need a resource that stands beyond ourselves in life. As the psalmist writes, unless the Lord builds the house, Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. I have spent a number of hours, weeks, days, months, grappling, probably, with the same question many of us grapple with on a regular basis. What are we going to do about this church? Over the past two years, we have endured, we have survived, we have held on. And we're at this moment in time where we're just like, well, what do we do now? Like, how do we have a little momentum? Like, God, what is it that you are calling us to? We want to be a people of great discernment like 
And so I sit with the board and I meet with people and I'm like, what if we did this and focus on the kids and we focus on this and preach and we do this and we do that and the other thing. And I just stress out about it all of the time. I think about it all of the time. And Dr. Becky, who's in the office with me, she always goes, listen, listen. I know that you think that there's a lot for you to do. And there, there is. But we need to pray. Because what it is that we need in our church and what it is that we need in our lives is not exclusively you, Aaron, or the board, or anything that we can do on ourselves. We are not sufficient to fulfill the calling that God has placed on us. We do not build the house of the Lord by ourselves. Is that we need actually to partner with the God who builds his own house through us, amen? And so we pray, I pray, Becky's like, no, Like, literally, we're going to pray right now. I'm like, fine, let's pray, right? But the spiritual truth about what it means to be a people and a community and a church collectively is also true for our own lives. I shared with you last week that I had taken this uh, class on addiction and family therapy. And as a part of the class, we heard a lot of stories from people who work in that field. And I even read the, the big book, the, the 12 Steps, written by Bill W. initially for Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's interesting to me, I was actually talking to Andy about this earlier this week, of how much of those 12 steps I feel like are just like 12 steps for life, not just 12 steps for addicts. That there are things that we can incorporate in our own lives to discover what it is that God wants to do in and through us. You see, and step number two is this. To come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The road towards recovery, the road towards health, the road toward becoming what it is that God wants the person that God has created you to be, requires and demands that you recognize that you need a power outside of yourself to restore you to sanity, to restore you to full health, to redeem and to heal you, is that you in and of yourself, this is the bad news, are not sufficient for your own healing and salvation. But this is the good news. There is a God who is sufficient for your healing and salvation. Amen? See, and this needing of something outside of our own selves to find healing and wholeness and holiness for our lives, it's not a deficiency of sufficiency. It is not a flaw with being human. It is a gift. Because in our weakness, our weakness becomes the canvas of God's power It becomes the place where God is going to display and reveal all of his goodness, love, grace, and healing power that he has onto your life. You become a walking testimony, bearing witness to what it is that God can do. That you reflect not your own strength and power, but the power of God. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, my grace is enough for you when you are weak, My power is made perfect in you. 
So I am very happy to brag about my weaknesses. Then Christ's power can live in me. For this reason, I am happy when I have weaknesses, insults, hard times, sufferings, and all kinds of troubles for Christ. Because when I am weak, then I am truly strong. See, as I thought about this current moment of our church, I thought, oh my God. No, like literally, oh my God. Like, we need you to show up. It actually is a moment where I recognize that I am not sufficient for the task. And I look at all of you, and as much as I love you, I'm like, oh my God, these people are not sufficient for the task either. What are we going to do? But you know who is sufficient for the task? Our God. And what I long and what I anticipate and what I hope for is not to see how clever and wise and brilliant we are, the resources that we have at our disposal, is in this moment for our church, my longing is to see what is it that God is going to do when God shows up? What is it that's going to happen in this place where we're going to look back in 10, 15 years and we're like, whoa, never in a million years did I think we could have done that. And then we'll say, we didn't do that. But God, there's a saying that Patty Litton shares a lot in her Bible study. I'm going to quote you real quick, Patty. I know she's on the live stream. She always says, God has got this. God has got us. In church, God has got us. But what's great about being weak people and not looking to our own selves is that we, we have this sense that we aspire to things that are greater and bigger than we could accomplish in our own selves. You see, God's call on our church and on you is greater than what you can do all alone. I have this hoop here. Uh, It's not really that big, but it'll serve for my illustrative purposes. So in the neighborhood, um, We play basketball with the kids all the time. I play basketball with the kids a lot of the time. We stand in the middle of the street, and we have every cone. We have a portable speed bump that we put out there. We got the little green turtle with the flag coming out of his back, like, (laughs) to keep cars from seeing, like, hey, all of us little ones, you know, and myself are out here playing in the street. And we got this basketball hoop my neighbor has across the street from my house. And all of the kids want to, like, be able to shoot in the hoop. But, like, Emma, she's two. And she's not strong enough to throw up into the hoop. And so what I'll often do is she'll come up to me when she'll see kids playing basketball. And she'll be like, Daddy, I want to shoot. You know, I can do it. I can do it. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure you can. And what she means is pick me up. And so I pick her up. And I'm like, okay. You know, and she goes up and she dunks the ball in the hoop. And we all celebrate like, yay, you did it. Come on, right? And then as soon as I do one, right, it's like every other kid in the neighborhood is lining up because they want to dunk as well. And it's fine, right? Hopefully my neighbors aren't watching this right now. Until there's this one kid, we call him Big Levi because he's a big kid. And he's only six, but he weighs like 100 pounds. And he comes up and he's like, me too, Mr. Aaron. And I'm like... Okay, right? I'm like, good thing I'm loose. And I'm in like a full squat position and I like explode up and I'm like, get it in there, right? But there is this sense in them that they can't do it by themselves. And see, the thing that we aspire to 
is to be those kinds of people with God. You see, the vision statement of our church is to see lives radically changed by Jesus Christ. To see lives radically changed by Jesus Christ. I don't know about you. I can't do that. But our God can. And in so much as we're willing not to look in ourselves, but to look to our God, and we're gonna be dunking basketballs. Man, I've always wanted to dunk. (laughs) May it be so in our church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.